Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm Sean Douglas, senior producer at the National Trust, and in this episode, we're celebrating Black History Month. The outdoor spaces that the National Trust looks after are some of the jewels in the crown of the British landscape. But historically, these are spaces that BAME communities have been reluctant to explore. As a black Brit that loves hiking, I wanted to take a deeper look into why this is and into what can be done to entice new communities into the great outdoors. Today I'm hiking up to Bradbury Castle, an old hill fort surrounded by fields and countryside as far as the eye can see. This place is a 20 minute drive or a one and a half hour hike from where I live currently in the southwest. For me, this place serves many purposes. It's a place that I come to think, it's a place I come for exercise, and it's a place I come just to observe the wonder of nature. This place is absolutely incredible for sunsets. To a lot of people listening to this podcast, the scenes that I'm describing may sound familiar, but as a black Brit that grew up in London, up until about four years ago, this experience would have felt like taking a trip to Mars. I wouldn't have known how to get here, I wouldn't have known what to do once I got here and I wouldn't have known what to wear. And now when I'm out in wild spaces, it's rare that I see another black hiker, climber or mountain biker. And although these spaces are free for all to enjoy, traditionally, they've been spaces that have felt closed off to people of colour. Here's psychologist and author Lola J. When we talk about barriers to the outside world, it can be quite confusing because we're not talking about physical barriers like barbed wire. We're talking about barriers such as social, economic, access, but also there are psychological barriers. When I think of the stories I'm told by my mum and my gran about their lives in Jamaica, they almost exclusively involve nature. Climbing coconut trees, playing in rivers and just generally engaging with nature. But when people like my gran came to the UK in the 50s and 60s, for many this signalled the start of a multi-generational disconnect with the great outdoors. When our parents came in the 50s and 60s, they had ideals, they had dreams. And those dreams meant, you know, working all the hours they could, making sure the children were fed, clothed and educated. And so going for a walk in the, in the rural countryside, it's not on their radar. Also, they routinely would see no dogs, no blacks, no Irish when they tried to rent a room, for example. The psychological scars caused by the treatment of our parents and grandparents run deep. So much so that icons of the countryside that create a warm and fuzzy feeling in most, when viewed through the lens of a person of colour, these same places can bring up feelings of fear and exclusion. For instance, the village pub. Historically, if we look at the 1970s, early 80s of NF, black people being spat at, black people being beaten up, basically told they're not welcome here. If I'm in a rural area, I'm not going to risk it. So there's no evidence that it's going to happen. But if we have parents and grandparents that have given us stories that are passed down, because I've been told that, I'm fearful of that. And that's an example of generational trauma. Cambridge University did some research and they found that by the age of one, the stress level cortisol was heightened. So if we look at our parents, our grandparents, there is a generational trauma that can be passed down. It's very interesting because when you look at the effects of outdoors, walking and hiking, the cortisol levels, it lessens as a result of that. 
So it's quite an irony, really. I think the younger generation probably would be up for going hiking in a rural area. There is a real emergence of the black middle classes. So the financial barriers may no longer exist, but those psychological barriers, they keep knocking on the door. So as I stand here looking out over the Wiltshire countryside, I have somewhat of a unique vantage point. Since moving out of London to work for the National Trust, my job has required me to spend time and learn to navigate outdoor spaces and rural communities. And while there have been a few isolated incidents of racism, the payoff is that I get to enjoy some amazing adventures. I speak to a lot of people that still think the outdoors is boring, inhospitable and unwelcoming. So to test how accurate these opinions are, I decided to invite my sister on her first hike. My sister still lives in London, has never been on a hike and isn't a fan of the great outdoors. Okay, so I'm just on the way to the train station to pick up my sister and um, she's in a bit of an apprehensive mood. She's not quite sure what to expect, this being her first hike. So it'll be interesting to see what mood she's in when I pick her up. Hello. Hello. How's your train journey? Great. You ready for the adventure? I am. So what comes into your mind when I say the great outdoors, national park, mountains? Wet, cold, hilly, freezing. So not nice things. <laughs> um, what have you brought with you today for walking? I've got trainers, hoodies, layers. Waterproofs, hiking boots. I literally have trainers. Probably need to take a trip to uh, Cotswood Outdoor and get you some kit. Okay then. So why haven't you been on a trip like this before? You go walking all the time. I go walking locally. And what about going somewhere more wild? Is it something that you thought of doing before? It's kind of on my bucket list, but I've not done it yet. So what would you say stopped you? I wouldn't do it by myself. A lot of my friends are not too much into fitness and the fear of also injury. What about a walking group, a hill walking group? Would that appeal to you? I literally would think people who are totally into that and go all the time, I would say mainly guys. Bear grills, tattoos. So do you think you'd fit into a group like that? Is that one of the reasons why you wouldn't do it? I would say I get on with anybody, but I don't think there would be much of someone like me. It's not a problem. It's just going to be more of something to be mindful of. So with an allowance of £300, I gave my sister the task of picking up the essentials. Hiking boots, a waterproof jacket and a day pack. Hiya. Hello. Hiya. So, um, do you just want to have a look at some of the stuff? Waterproof jacket. That actually looks quite nice. Oh, that's 176, so we probably need to check for something else. Oh, that's 185. That's more than that one. We need a bag as well. Do you want to take a look at the bag? It's 95 pounds. That would be the 300 pounds. The hiking boots. Oh, hiking boots. Oh my gosh. So that's not a lot at all then, is it? So you want to go and talk to the attendant? Okay. Just like me, when I first started hiking, my sister found the prices of premium gear surprising. But there is gear out there for every budget. The most important thing is to get advice on the correct gear and the right fit. So first, the walking boots. This is our range of women's footwear. We recommend boots for less likelihood of ankle rollover. The grips on the bottom tend to be a bit better for your muds and multi-terrains. 
and then a bag with the right fit. Grip this between your finger and your thumb. Right. And pull it downwards and backwards. Flip it over a little bit on the back there. And you do the hip strap up first. And to save my sister from a heavy downpour, the right waterproof jacket. It's designed to be only fully done up when you do the hood up fully. It's a guard so you keep your sort of bottom of your face warm. Finally, any good retailer should be able to give you advice on how to use the gear and what to look out for when you're on your trip. Most sturdy walking boots we sell, yeah. if your foot goes fully down a hole, and some of them will be that deep, even deeper, right. it's all about keeping your eyes open yeah. and watching where you're going. Um, the other big danger in the summer is ticks. So armed with the gear and advice she needed for her first hike, we made the two-hour drive to a busy car park nestled within the towering peaks of the Bracken Beacons National Park. So should we get out and have a look at our new surroundings? Right. Okay, so just looking around the car park that we're in, can you just kind of describe what you see? Um, lots of guys, the odd girl. We've got the maps, the rucksacks, the woolly hats, the anoraks. Before we went to Cotswold Outdoor yesterday, if you'd say come here with your friends and just come into this car park, would you feel like you belonged here? Anywhere you go, some people are friendly and some are not. So I would feel that we'd get stairs anyway. Let's go. So if you look up there, that is Penny Fen. It's going to be an eight-mile round trip, so four miles up to the top and four miles back. As well as the flat, we're going up vertically half a mile as well. Massive challenge. <laughs> cool. <laughs> as we started walking to my sister, the trail felt quite familiar. I didn't think there would be any tarmac. So does this give you a sense that it might be easier than you thought? No. <laughs> <laughs> but as we got further into the wilderness, she got further out of her comfort zone. Now it's uneven ground with stones. I can see all the different mountains and yeah it's quite misty high up it's literally a bit of fog up there so oh, that's not fog those are the clouds oh that's the clouds <laughs> and I can see dotted people higher up what are these are they um that's sheep? okay <laughs> well that's something I've never seen up close before <laughs> and then it was only a matter of time before it happened that thing my sister dreaded the most being stared at by locals and we are getting stared at Why oh yeah she... gosh they are for a townie, there's nothing stranger than a field of sheep intently staring at you while they chew their cud. And we're literally about six feet away from them. But from the people we met, there were no stares, instead just words of encouragement for my sister as she scaled the mountain. <laughs> oh, good on you. Luck. Your first ever hike. Yeah, and it's eight miles today. <laughs> That's amazing. Good luck. Cheers, thanks. thanks. Two hours into our ascent, we'd passed loads of hikers, but it soon dawned on us that we seemed to be the only black hikers on the mountain. This got us thinking about media and historical representations of black people and adventure. When you think of explorers going to the Arctic yeah. and going to the Sahara and all of those things, do you ever see any black people doing that? No, I haven't, actually. When you think of explorers, does black and explorer come into your mind? Not at all. But what's ironic is some of history's greatest adventurers were individuals with African heritage. Did you know the first ever people to get to the North Pole, part of that team was a black guy called Matthew Henson? No, I didn't. Does that surprise you? That does. Three, two, one, zero. Just like the space race in the 1950s, in the late 1800s, the race to the North Pole captured the public's imagination. 
explorers became national heroes as they risked their lives to navigate to a tiny theoretical point on the vast polar ice cap. There was Italy's Umberto Cani, Norway's Fritjof Nansen, and from the United States, it was Robert Edwin Pieri. To win the race, Pieri had a strategy. He would make successive trips into the Arctic Circle, each time going further and further north until he could make that final push to the North Pole. To achieve this, he knew he'd need a capable team. And of the crew members that he chose, one person seemed like an odd choice. A 20-year-old African-American with no formal education and little polar experience. His name was Matthew Henson. But as a man that ran away to sail the high seas at the age of 12, Henson's thirst for adventure caught Pierre's eye. Here's Genevieve Lemoyne, archaeologist and curator at the Pierre Macmillan Arctic Museum. The captain of the ship, Captain Childs, kind of took him under his wing and continued his education. And so he sailed the world. He became a very good carpenter. He was a skilled seaman. Uh, he just picked up skills very, very easily. After years of expeditions on that final push to the North Pole in 1908, because of his skill and knowledge, amongst the Harvard graduates and scientists, Henson was chosen to lead one of the expedition teams. There were seven American teams, each one with probably another two or three Inuit men with them. The contribution of Henson and his team was instrumental to the success of the expedition. Keep digging! Often he was in the lead. He was cutting the trail. He and the Inuit who were most closely working with him at the time, hacking their way through pressure ridges, establishing a camp, starting to build the igloos for people to sleep in. Every couple of days when people were being sent back, it was Henson who picked out the best dogs to stay and which ones would be sent back. He was the main conduit of information between Peary and really pretty much everyone else. He did become completely fluent in Inuktitut, which is the language that the Inuit in Greenland speak, and that was key to his work with Peary. He really was the kind of the glue that held that expedition together at that point. Ultimately, for that final push to the North Pole, it was Peary and Henson and four Inuit, Utah, Siglu, Igingwa, and Ukria. So that was the, those were the six people who made the whole trip there and back. On the 6th of April, 1909, they finally made it. And although their achievement was contested by a rival polar team, when Pierre's team arrived back in the US, their achievement was celebrated. There were lots of media attention. All the big dinners, all the medals that were awarded went to the white Americans. Henson was described as a servant or whatever. He just wasn't given the attention and certainly not given the, the rewards that he deserved. Peary died in 1920, and he, as a naval officer, was buried in Arlington National Cemetery, as is typical for military officers in the United States. Henson, he was buried with his wife in a cemetery in, in the Bronx. You know, he wasn't considered a national hero. It wasn't until almost 30 years later that Henson started being acknowledged for his contribution. In 1937, he was made an honorary member of the New York Explorers Club. And since then, schools, ships and even glaciers have been named in his honour. 
and in 1989 the graves of Henson and his wife were moved from the Bronx and positioned next to Pierre and his wife in the Arlington Cemetery. Nowadays, he's getting much more positive attention. He's still getting awards. National Geographic Society awarded him the Hubbard Medal in 2000, posthumously. The U.S. Post Office issued a stamp with both Peary and Henson on it. Somebody looked into this, and I believe for children, there are more books about Matthew Henson now than there are about Peary. So he's, he's finally getting the rewards that he deserved. Inspired by the story of Henson, me and my sister continued our ascent of Penny Fan. Wow, check out this view. Yeah. Where the fields just stop and it's just bump, yep. valley, bump, valley. Yeah. Anyway, enough of the views. We've got mountains to climb. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Oh. I've got to the section that my brother says will look like the top. It's not the top. Another full summit, getting to know the technical terms as we walk up this hill. A bit challenging, but we're getting up. Well, I have got the trekking poles if you need them. Uh, or are you going to be stubborn not, and not take them? Not yet. And after a bit more hiking, we arrived at what at the time looked like a stairway to heaven. A 60 metre, almost vertical scramble of rock and loose gravel. OK, so you just said, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you say that? I was just walking and I heard, oh my God. <laughs> I got to a point and I just looked up and I was just like, whoa. Because I've just seen at the top of where we've got to get to. But why is it so... Why? It's steep. It's really, really steep. We've got the trekking pole, so you sure you don't want one now? I don't know. This is where you need your four-wheel drive legs. <laughs> <sighs> If you need to use your hands at certain points, feel free to do so. Yeah. Because it's quite slippery in these bits. Remember, think like a gazelle, like a mountain goat. <laughs> Choose your route. Aren't you glad you got the grippy boots? Yeah. I might need the stick, actually. <laughs> Cheers. We'll see if that... Help. Is this more what you thought of when we talked about climbing a mountain? Yeah, but I'm glad it's not like this all the way through. Gosh, it's so steep. <laughs> now I'm going to get up there. <sighs> or should I go up that way? See this one to your, to your right? Okay. It's gone from being quiet to being really loud. You can hear like, it's almost like there's a party out there. <laughs> We're literally got to the top and the 20 metres from the top. Almost there. Almost there. Yep. Literally that 20 metres. Straight this way, up this, up this line. The one that your hand's on, round it. And just go to your right. Here? Yeah. Two more steps. <laughs> <laughs> so you happy? Yeah. Made it? You feel a sense of achievement? Definitely. Were you going to give up? No way. There's actually loads and loads and loads of people up here at the top. 200 more? About two, yeah, 200 people probably. There's small children, dogs, there's young people, there's old people. But um, we've got to go and have a picture. Because oh. we still actually haven't reached the top. That's oh. the proper top. We made it, National Trust, Penny Fan, 886 metres. Wow. <laughs> 
Okay, smile. Three, two, one. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for that. After striking a pose for our mandatory summit photo, I spotted a group of guys celebrating their ascent in a truly unique way. So sorry guys, I just had to come over because the last thing I expected to hear at the top of Penny Fan is someone busting Lauren Hill songs on the speakers. So what community are you from? We're from the Sikh community in Bristol. And is it something that's quite common in, in your community to go hiking? I don't see it's very common. Everyone's been massively friendly, but there can be that apprehension of going outside of the city if you are city people. You know, wherever you go, there will be people who aren't used to seeing cultures like ours. And we're proud of our culture, you know. We'll, we'll listen to Laura Hill, but we'll listen to our Punjabi music. And it's just like, it's not about scaring people about our culture, it's about showing people our culture. Yeah, it's kind of nice to, to play music from different cultures in somewhere like this and people recognise it, whether you're white, black, wherever you're from, you know. So we've had a f quite a few nice people say, hey, it's on Lauren Hill. Yeah. So we've heard a bit of Lauren Hill. Can you, can you play some Punjabi music? Yeah. I've got all yeah. the Punjabi music. Don't worry about me. <laughs> if you want to if you want to propose to a lady, if you yeah. do a song, the yes one. is the only answer. <laughs> Try to say yes twice. <laughs> we left the party vibes and hijinks of the summit and made our way down to a lower ridge to soak in the peace and tranquility. The sun's shining, there's birds flying about, there's butterflies. We're just overlooking a lake, there's people swimming, and it's just really peaceful. I think one of the things that I most noticed when I first came out here was just the silence. Being in London, it's never silent, so it was quite hard to get used to it. People come out to the mountains just for their mental health as well. Do you think, can you understand why they do that? Definitely. Your mind is clear to think, just to take in, and it's very chilling. I'm Marlon Patrice, the director of We Go Outside 2. Marlon set up We Go Outside 2 to help black communities in the Midlands connect with the healing powers of nature after a personal tragedy. My son got stabbed. He was 17 years old. At the time, they were offering me therapy, but it was like through Zoom call. And I don't know, man, I wasn't really feeling it. Like the dots weren't connecting. I've always been a person that goes into nature, just being out in like green spaces. My heart opened up. I just started to go out more because I just needed like space. I was rarely able to grieve. There was times where like I would cry outdoors. I needed to let it flow, let it flow and let it go. Let them tears flow. It could have been done in the city, but this tough exterior, it's not needed out in nature. And it gave me like a new release of life. Space to think what next and how we're gonna turn this negative into a positive. And then the idea came to me like to bring the black community together to put these walks on. Since starting in 2020, We Go Outside 2 has gathered a mailing list of almost 400 people and has led groups on walks and outdoor experiences. And they're not the only ones. In 2019, Black Girls Hike took to social media to encourage black women into the outdoors. Sherelle Harding is their Midlands lead. When I found Black Girls Hike, it was because I was complaining. I was on Instagram having a bit of a Instagram rant and I had posted on my story 
I wish that more black people enjoyed the outdoors and were into hiking. And someone replied to me, have you heard about this new group? They're called Black Girls Hike. We made it. My first Black Girls Hike was definitely emotional. Lots of emotions went through me. It just felt so nice to be around other black women. There was a lot of joy, excitement. It really is a beautiful space that, you know, so many people are going to benefit from. Since joining Black Girls Hike, Sherelle has set up her own walking group called Steppers UK. And there are many groups like this popping up around the UK and getting a lot of media attention. But when this does happen, others take to social media to voice their objections. A common opinion being the idea of a black walking group fuels racism rather than extinguishing it. Here's Phil Young, founder of The Outsiders Project and co-founder of Black Trail Runners. Black Trail Runners is not a black-only running group. In fact, we have many white allies that run with us. But if you have no experience of it, do you want to be the sole black or brown person that goes to an all-white trail running group and be looked at? Whether people are looking at you in a negative way or not, you feel the eyes on you. You feel the questions. You know, why do you only have a, a female swimming club? Well, because we feel a little bit anxious about people looking at us in bathing suits. The answers are pretty similar. It's just to give people the opportunity to be themselves without judgment. And whether you're a beginner or at the top of your game, the perceived judgments about who you are and what you're capable of can make joining a mainstream outdoor community challenging. My name is Sophia Dannenberg, and I was the first Black woman and the first African-American to summit Mount Everest. Sophia has scaled the 8,849 metres of Everest. But when she approached a fellow climber for advice on an expedition she was planning to Amma de Blom, which stands at just 6,812 metres, the reaction she got was less than encouraging. The very first thing she said is, you're going to climb Amma de Blom? I mean... What have you climbed before? I mean, have you climbed? Are you a climber? Like, it didn't start with the assumption that, like, maybe I actually was capable of doing it. And it was to the point that I was with other white male climbers, and, and they were taken aback. They, they were shocked. They, 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 they were like, that was the most bizarre reaction I've ever seen to anyone. I think it was the first time I noticed it, and then, and then, and then I really noticed it when I moved, trying to get into a new climbing community the number of people that I would ask about rock climbing and they would send me to a class or an intro to climbing class it was it was unbelievable I got away from the clubs away from the groups away from the men and I just looked specifically on like online forums and stuff for like women that wanted to go climbing and that I found that's where I found all my first climbing partners here Back at Pennyfan, me and my sister continued our way down the mountain. And after almost six hours of hiking, the car park we started at was almost in sight. You were smiling at the start of the day. You're not smiling as much now. <laughs> uh, what are your reflections on your first hike? It's been a long one. This part of the day is harder. Well, how is it uh, compared to what you thought it would be? Um, it's not harder than I thought it would be, but... It's a shock to the system. Thinking of going into the wilderness, I thought it would be very solitary, not seeing many people, just by ourselves. But we've seen a lot of people and we've seen quite a lot of diversity as well. Everybody's really friendly. A couple of, I guess they were tired, so they couldn't talk no more, like I'm borderline of that. <laughs> but literally everyone we've seen, they've been really friendly, chatty. 
and happy to tell their experiences. Our trip to Penny Fan was overwhelmingly positive. And in my experience, negative interactions in the outdoors are the exception and not the rule. But just like every hiker assumes and prepares for the fact that one day they might be bitten by a tick, roll their ankle or come face to face with livestock, as a black hiker, there's a likelihood that at some point your race will become an issue when venturing into the outdoors. But that shouldn't stop you from wanting to explore wild spaces. If you're from a BAME, LGBT, disability community or have any other nuance that may limit your access to the outdoors, there's probably a group out there that will understand your needs. And the other reasons for staying away from the outdoors? Well, generally, these can be overcome. So, it's too far away. The outdoors is as close as you want it to be. My local woods is a mile and a half away from me. An eight-minute run where I can see woodpeckers and ancient oak trees. If you want to go for a day trip to Epping Forest, I think you can get there on the central line. And then there's those that say it's too expensive. A lot of outdoor equipment is expensive, but it's just about exploring what other options there are. You know, I'd always recommend boots to people, but there are spaces that you can explore in just trainers. And then there's those that say it's too wet, it's too cold, it's just not something I'm going to enjoy. All of those things are true. It is cold, it might rain, and it is tiring. But the payoff at the top is like nothing you'll encounter anywhere else. The, the sense of achievement, the, the endorphins, the elation is, is only bettered by the phenomenal views that you can get in the UK looking over our magnificent landscapes. Last 10 metres. <laughs> Last five metres. <laughs> How are you feeling? Absolutely shattered. <laughs> Would you do it again? Yeah, I just need a couple of days rest. <laughs> cool. Shall we jump in the car back to Swindon? Right, let's go. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. If you've been inspired to venture into the great outdoors, you can find a list of resources and BAME hiking groups at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash black hiking or check the show notes for more information. We'd also like to thank Cotswold Outdoor for their help producing this episode. For more podcasts from the National Trust, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. We'll be back soon with a new episode. But for now, from me, Sean Douglas, goodbye. Goodbye.